How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we're ready to focus and study the word this evening, make sure we're in fellowship, confess any known sins in silent prayer to God so that um, we can be forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and ready to go forward in our spiritual life. Let's pray. Father, we are so <clears throat> extremely grateful that we have the privilege to come into your presence because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that because of his work, because he paid the penalty in full, we have direct access to your throne through faith in Christ. And on the basis of his high priesthood, we have unique privileges as uh, being identified with him through the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that we can uh, live out our lives as you would have us. We have a, we have great freedoms, great privileges, and tremendous spiritual assets that you've given every one of us. So that no matter what the circumstances are that we face in life, no matter what uh, uh, situations, no matter what people or events surround us, we know that we can be happy. We can have great joy as we focus upon you and we focus upon your word and we put our eyes on you and not upon our circumstances that uh, we might uh, glorify you and demonstrate in our lives that your word is true and accurate and your plan is uh, perfect. Father, we pray as we study your word this evening that you would help us to understand it, to be challenged by it, and that we might uh, have God the Holy Spirit use it to just strengthen Strengthen our, our understanding of your word and our spiritual life and our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to be going back over Acts 15 a little bit. So open your Bibles to Acts 15, 13. And we will start there with James' response as he adds to what uh, Peter and Paul have already said. Now, I covered this to some degree in the last lesson, and as I've been gone the last two weeks because I was, uh, I was traveling in Israel, and that was just, a, just another incredible trip. Somebody asked me the other day if this was the best trip yet, and I said, I don't know. Every trip has been just, just remarkable. Uh, I wish we could all go over there and go to all these sites. It's, uh, it's not that it's necessary for your spiritual life, but it adds a dimension of appreciation and adds to our capacity for understanding the Word that, um, that, that, that you can't really quantify. Uh, one man, <clears throat> Bob Guerra, who's the chairman for, of the board for Dean Bible Ministries, uh, sort of helped put it into words uh, today when we were talking. Uh, we have such wonderful technology today. If you've got an iPhone, if you don't have an iPhone, you don't know what I'm talking about, but that's okay. One day you'll, you'll, you will become part of the spiritual Brahmin, the, the spiritually mature that utilize Apple products instead of whatever that knockoff is. And, um, uh, you, if you are <coughs> properly connected, you have this app called FaceTime. And I think it's changed a little bit because when it first came out and I first had an iPhone and I was using it in Kiev, it, both people had to be connected wirelessly. But I made a couple of calls from Israel this time where I was on a wireless network. But, I mean, I called my wife one day. I was off an hour, and um, she was already sitting at her desk at school. So <clears throat> it, she, she did not have to be on a wireless network to, as well to receive that FaceTime, and FaceTime allows you to see the person you're talking to as well as talk to them. So we discovered that on the bus we had a wireless router on the bus so we could all connect wirelessly with our iPhones. And I called up Bob and caught him. You know, it was early in the morning. They were there. It was 2 or 3 in the afternoon where I was. 
and we were driving through the Valley of Elah, which is where David fought Goliath, and we were hitting a few other spots later on along the Dead Sea, and his nine-year-old granddaughter, who's memorized incredible amounts of Scripture and done a tremendous, tremendous, uh, um, every time she comes and visits, she's quoting more scripture and has all the books of the Bible memorized and everything, which is tremendous. But it was just so neat because I could take my iPhone and hold it up by the window and show her as we're going through these locations. And she could just see it just as clear as anything. And it just adds, it reinforces, as Bob was saying this morning, that kind of thing just reinforces that these aren't just stories, that they happened in a specific location at a specific time, and they're, they're real events. They're not just stories, which is what the world tries to tries to communicate on these things. And one of the high points for me on this trip, which was similar to one <clears throat> we took uh, with the tour group last year, was that I got to go into uh, Shomron, which is the Hebrew for Samaria. And Shomron and Judea are the proper terms to refer to what uh, people who are not informed, refer to as the West Bank. See, the trouble is every word you use to describe that territory is politically charged. So you, whatever word you use, you can't find a neutral word, so just give it up. Uh, West Bank is the, what's, what's on the East Bank? Anybody know? Jordan. Jordan, that's exactly right. And why did it become known as the West Bank? Because originally the uh, side e- east of the Jordan was called the Kingdom of of the Transjordan, and once in the 1948 Israel War of Independence, when the uh, Jordan, along with uh, Syria and Iraq and and uh, Egypt and Lebanon, all attacked uh, Israel, that Jordan captured this territory uh, west of the Jordan River, and so at that point they made a distinction between the area they had had in the new territory, which came under their, their authority, which was the West Bank. So the term West Bank only has validity if you're assuming that, that Jordan had control. And no nation ever really, no nation in the world recognized Jordanian authority over the West Bank. But, but people who lived in Samaria and Judea, the Arabs that lived there had Jordanian passports but not Jordanian citizenship, and they still travel on Jordanian passports. It's just a, it's, it's just a, such a mixed-up situation. But this land, as I've taught from this pulpit many times, all of the land west of the Jordan River was legally given to the Jewish people under their, to be give, held in trust by the British under what was known as the British Mandate until uh, the Jewish people could... Uh, manage their own affairs. And the San Remo Resolution, which was voted on and approved by the 55 members of the League of Nations in 1920, gave it international status. And if you reject that, like the uh, Arabs on the west of the Jordan want to do, the so-called Palestinian Arabs, uh, if you reject that, you have to, in order to be logical, reject the all of the other borders, which means you can't accept the borders of Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, <coughs> Saudi Arabia, or Iraq. The problem today is that that a lot of those borders, which were drawn rather haphazardly by the European powers at the end of World War One, by haphazardly I mean they did not take into account ancient tribal boundaries. This is why we're having this civil war. In Syria, you've got a hodgepodge of different uh, tribal groups who have had centuries of animosity. So going back to the borders of the, uh, decided upon in San Remo is, may not work much longer. Because, and this is what's happening across North Africa and uh, many of those uh, nations that were established in the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century are composed of... Um, 
just a mix of people. So much stuff that we learned on the trip. It's just, just, uh, just incredible. But I just wanted to express the thanks that I have to the congregation for letting me go on trips like that. I know that's hard on people because in their self-absorbed spirituality, they think their pastor needs to be there every week, not recognizing the great pastors of all history, like Charles Spurgeon said that any loving congregation would give their pastor three months off every year in order to have time to study, uninterrupted study of the Word, because you don't have time to do that when you're to really do in-depth study. Now, I'm not arguing for a three-month vacation every year, but I'm just saying that this has been a... um, Something that has been recognized by a lot of pastors over the over the years. When I go on a trip like this, and I realize how ignorant I am in so many areas, and how much there is to read and study. It's it's just uh, it's just unbelievable how much there is out there, and you just want to go go be able to go and study and study and study because when you have things that come up all the time as things do when you're uh, pastoring a church that interrupt unless you have a large church where you can have a large staff that can do all of the day-to-day things for you uh you you've got to do those yourself and that's the way it is if you've got any church that's under 500 people uh you just don't have the opportunity to say oh I'm just going to study and teach and anybody who believes that is just has no clue what reality is like because a pastor can't just study and teach unless he has an army of people who can take care of all of his logistics for him. But if you're a pastor and you don't have that ar- army or that staff to do that, then you have to do all of those other things yourself, and that's true for any pastor of a church under two or 300. So I always appreciate the time uh, to get away and go on trips like this and to uh, learn and to study and to expand my understanding of uh, so many different things, not only historical, biblical background things, but how uh, things are in the world today, because a lot of things that you learn on the ground going to Israel are very different from what you see on uh, CNN, Fox News, ABC. In, in, everything gets so filtered and by a certain mindset here and information that we never Never hear of uh, one. Little, I'll throw one little tidbit out, and then we'll get get into the text. But one of our speakers m- made the point that for the last seven or eight years, uh, one of our lovely friends—and I'm saying that with a lot of sarcasm—because sometimes you you don't pick them because they're nice people, but because they do good. They do things that are beneficial for you. So one of our <coughs> dear quote friends unquote. And by our, I mean powers in the West, was this crazy totalitarian evil dictator by the name of Muammar Gaddafi. And for the last seven or eight years, Gaddafi's people have actually been training agents to go undercover for the British and French into the, um, into the uh, Muslim, radical Muslim groups in France and Britain in order to get intelligence from what was going on there out to the British and the French. And then the Americans, in all of their wisdom, in all of their uh, utopian idealism, get in the middle of all this because they, we have an administration that doesn't know what in the world they're doing. And so we get all high and mighty on our arrogant little horse and off we go and trying to make the world perfect and really cause a lot of problems. Now, none of you ever heard that on any news outlet here. But from our intelligence briefing in Israel, that's a major part of what was going on. There's so many things that we just don't get told. And we think we know what's going on. And we don't get the truth to, to do that. So it's, it's always fun and interesting to get out there and find out what's going on in the rest of the world. So that's just one little, uh, tidbit from contemporary things. But biblically, one of the things that, that really meant a lot to me was, uh, after the APAC group was over with and we went, um, uh, I had worked with 
through Titus Kennedy. Some of you know Todd Kennedy, been a long-time doctrinal pastor up in Spokane, pastor of Spokane Bible Church. His son's getting his Ph.D. in archaeology and, I, and has worked a lot in the uh, area of Samaria and in the archaeological digs there. So I contacted Titus to see if he knew somebody who could take me into the uh, Palestinian-controlled uh, territory to some of these uh, archaeological sites, and he recommended a, an individual who ended up not being able to go actually take us, so we went with the next guy, who was Andrew Cross, who was the son of John Cross, it turned out. I mean, I saw his name and was emailing with him and never connected him to John Cross up from up in, uh, up in uh, Canada, and uh, the author of uh, Road to Emmaus and some of the other books, and John was on the board for Chafer Seminary. And so his son is in his third year studying at, uh, at Hebrew University, and he took us into, um, into Samaria. And we were driving along a highway. I've been down once before last summer. And he pulled over, and he stopped, and he said, there's a, there's a hill right there. Now, this hill was as far off the road as the sound booth is from the stage. And it was a hill that rose about, about 50 feet elevation over the highway, and you couldn't see past it because there were two or three Arab homes on the hill. But he said on the other side of that hill are, the, are what's believed to be the location of Bethel. And if on the right side of the highway, on the east side, there was another knoll that was about maybe 100 yards away, and then just to the south of it was another knoll that was about maybe 75 yards away, and, um, you know, we drove right down that highway. Those of you who were with me last year, we drove right down this highway, and it wasn't pointed out to us. But on these two knolls on the east side, one knoll is believed by tr- tr- traditional archaeologists to believe the locate to be the location of AI, but it doesn't fit the, uh, every detail in the passage. But the, the, the place just on the knoll just south of it is. But this little knoll that was on the left is mentioned in Genesis 15:8 that when Abraham left Shechem, he moved south and camped on a hill between Bethel and Ai, and that was right on top of that hill. And you just stand there and you think, 4,000 years ago, Abraham was camped out with Sarah right there before they moved on, and that and it probably didn't look a whole lot different then than it does now. And that just sort of brings the historical, geographical reality of the Scripture home in ways that that um, uh, otherwise it, it doesn't. You, it's not that it increases your faith or anything, but it helps you understand the, the, the on-the-ground uh, intelligence, as it were, talking about using modern, modern uh, language, that you just can't beat to be on the ground looking at it face-on it's just great. So the next trip I'm going to lead over there is going to be in November of 2014. So make your plans now and start saving your shekels. All right, Acts 15. Acts 15, um, starting in uh, verse 13, is where we see James' response. Now, we, I covered a lot of this last week, but I want to dig down a little bit and bring out a couple of things that I didn't get into last time. And we didn't look at um, the passage. I'm going to keep doing this all night. After you go to Israel and all the people you talk to have biblical names, Amos, Yaakov, David, you come, I come back and I'm still pronouncing things like Hebrew. So I'll go back and forth and drive some of you nuts for a while, but that's okay. You'll get over it. So we ha- we'll look at the uh, passage in Amos 9 um, uh, a little more this time than we did the last time. This is a critical passage. See, if you have a Schofield reference Bible, I think a couple of you still use a Schofield. If you look at his note on this passage, Schofield believed this was the most significant dispensational passage in all of the New Testament. And so there's a real battleground over this particular passage, and there are uh, two key issues here, two key issues. The first is an issue of interpretation. Interpretation, that does, that's what does the text mean? And do we interpret the text on a literal basis or an allegorical basis? And in a society where uh, intellectual pursuits are in the decline, and when morality is challenged and the traditions of Judeo-Christianity are being challenged, the battlefield is no longer on what the text says in any arena, but what the text means. 
And that's not just what does the text of the Bible mean, but what does the Constitution mean? The battle shifts to away from what does it say and how do we implement it to what does it mean, and you start battling over what's the correct way to interpret those documents. And so there's a battle as we, we fight over how do we interpret the Constitution? Is it a living document that is reinterpreted for every generation, or does it have an absolute meaning uh, that is defined by generally by the intent of the authors of the Constitution. The same issue is true in Scripture. Are we to understand the, the, the writings of Scripture on the basis of a literal, plain meaning, in other words, using language in its normal, everyday sense, or are we to seek some sort of hidden meaning, symbolic meaning, allegorical meaning in the text? And that, that, that's extremely important because uh, there's only those two two positions any kind of anything that's a combination or compromise with allegory if it's 10% allegory 20% 30% any allegory you you've lost your uh foundation for objectivity once a pastor or once a theological system validates allegorical interpretation you have sacrificed objective the understanding objective truth because allegory is basically assigning subjective uh values to various things in the text so that your idea and another person's idea are going to change there's no control over over the meaning of the text so that uh, you understand you can't go to a dictionary because a dictionary is going to tell you what the literal meaning is and sometimes and we're not saying that with literal interpretation that we deny the use of figures of speech or metaphor but those those figures of speech idioms or metaphor are used within a standard uh, a, a standard context have no idea what that is that's my Computer blocking somebody trying to get in. So, um, okay. So we, this is the battle, and to bring this home to us, there is a congregation that's uh, got a history of being uh, being do- a doctrinal church down in Corpus Christi, and they have a pastor, a pastor who came from a, a church up in Pennsylvania, who was ordained at Baraka Church back in the early nineties. And that pastor and the pastor down Corpus Christi have gone over to into allegorical interpretation. Once you make that shift, and Israel doesn't mean Israel anymore, the church doesn't mean the church anymore, and you start getting into areas of what is known as, as um, in a lot of ways, you can get into replacement theology, which is where uh, God's promises to Israel now go to the church instead of to Israel. And this is extremely dangerous. And uh, what has happened in that congregation, what has happened in a number of people related to that congregation, is very, very sad. And um, and we've got people in this congregation who have family members who are in both of those congregations. I've mentioned this before, but this is this is what's happened: is you get this shift away from a plain, literal interpretation. And this is foundational. And as I was in Israel this last time, again and again, this issue of replacement theology came up and uh, trying to um, understand the role of it, the relationship of Israel to the, to the church. And we'll be getting into that more and more on Thursday nights now as we get into Romans chapter 9 through 11. And those three chapters deal with God's uh, plan for Israel, that God has not given up Israel, and that the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises to David, uh, the promises to the Jewish people have not been transferred to the church they are still going to be fulfilled eventually with the Jewish people. And that's also at the foundation of this passage. That central issue of interpretation leads to the second issue in this passage, which is replacement theology. And replacement theology is rearing its ugly head again uh, in, in a lot of political ways in what is becoming known as Palestinian uh, Christianity. 
Palestinian Christianity as opposed to Judeo-Christianity. And this is, uh, has been expressed through a number of different organizations over the last uh, 15 or 20 years. One is known as Sabeel. It's also prominent in a lot of World Council of Churches uh, propaganda. Uh, they've been having a meeting for several years in Bethlehem called Christ at the Checkpoint. Because when you go from the uh, from uh, Israel over into Samaria or Judea into the Palestinian-controlled territory, then you have to go through a checkpoint. So it's Christ at the checkpoint, and it's pure liberal utopianism, and it's loaded with uh, a, a lot of a, a lot of lies and a lot of the propaganda that comes out from the Palestinian community. And so, but what governs it is replacement theology. There's a, a, a film that came out in the last three or four years called With God on Our Side. I think I've mentioned it before. I found out this time that it, it was indeed funded to a large part out of a church, a very, very large church, well-known um, church out of Chicago called Willow Creek, pastored by a man named Bill Hybels. He's one of, he and Rick Warren are some of the founders of the whole um, church growth movement. Um, back in the 90s, uh, Willow Creek was the largest church in the United States. These pastors have a huge network of churches and pastors that they influence, and this is starting to stem the tide. There's been an increasing, for for the last uh, 150 years, a continuous increase in the number of evangelicals that support Israel because of a biblical foundation. This is starting to stem that tide, and it's an extremely dangerous movement. Rick Warren has over 750,000 churches, pastors, that have signed on to his whole uh, purpose-driven insanity, and they have to follow that whole blueprint to the letter or be kicked out. And so they all march like a bunch of little uh, tin soldiers uh, down the path of false teaching. And Rick Warren is also into this uh, Palestinian Christianity, anti-Christian Zionism uh, mentality. So this is just extremely uh, distressing and concerning, but living in the times in which we live, uh, it's what we should expect as things fall apart. So this, these issues are central to understanding this particular passage in um, uh, Acts 15. So James says, answers, he addresses the men and brethren, listen to me, Simon, that is referring to uh, Peter uh, by his Hebrew name, uh, Shimon, uh, Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, what's interesting is the word there, uh, epikaleo, for take out of, is uh, uh, built on the same root, kaleo, as ecclesia, the word for church. So it's a little bit of a, of a paranomation in the sense that it's a word that is similar to the word for church, to sort of, uh, a, sort of a play on words there. Uh, because the church is is a group that's called out from the world to assemble as the church, so there's a there's a play there. Ecclesia doesn't mean to called out. That's the uh, etymological root of the meaning. It simply means an assembly that's called, and so this group is another group that's called uh, out uh, to make a people for His name. Now this brings up an important uh, issue as well which is, are there just one people of God or two? Now, as I pointed out in looking at this slide on replacement theology, in replacement theology and in covenant theology, which is what a lot of Calvinism is is uh, housed in, is that you have um, uh, one people of God. There's the Old Testament people of God, which is, in their view, that's the church of the Old Testament, and the church is the Israel of God in the New Testament. That's their view. And so you have one people of God uh, throughout all of history. And so, but what we have here is not a reference to that concept. As premil- in premillennial theology, and especially dispensational theology, there are two peoples of God. There's the church, and there's Israel, and there's a distinction. God has a distinct plan. Uh, for these two two groups, and so as as um, 
James begins to speak here. He re- references back to what, what Peter has just said. Peter talked about the revelation that God gave him in Caesarea, or actually when he was in Joppa to go to Caesarea where uh, Cornelius was located. And so God gave him new revelation indicating that God's plan to take the gospel to the Gentiles and include them in this, in this new people where there would be neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave, for we are all one in Christ. And so uh, now James, on the basis of Old Testament revelation, notice their appeal is to Scripture. Their appeal is not to experience. Peter's appeal wasn't to his experience. It was to the revelation that God gave him. James' appeal is to the revelation of the Old Testament, and so he goes to uh, Amos. So uh, let's turn our Bibles to Amos or Amos 9, chapter 9, and just look at what's going on on, um, on there. James, when James has his quote in Acts 15, he is quoting from the Septuagint, as I pointed out last time. But not it's not identical to what is usually accepted as the main uh, Septuagint text today. This was another one of those interesting little things that... Uh, Came along while I was while I was traveling. One of the um, men who went through seminary a few years after I did, who is quite brilliant, Jewish background uh, believer in Christ. Uh, his name is Michael Rydelnik, and and Michael is the head of the Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute. And as I was leaving leaving Houston, um, we got out to the airport a couple hours earlier. I got an email from Tommy Ice, my good friend, with a link to a uh, a message that Michael Rydelna gave uh, at, at a Liberty University. Randy Price, another close friend, who's the head of the Jewish Studies Department at Liberty, had invited Michael to come out there to talk about some of the issues related to uh, Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Michael has written probably the, the, the most important book on that that came out a couple of years ago. And um, so I was listening to his his lecture on uh, Messianic, and it was interesting because I've read his book about nine times, taught through it three times in different things here, Messianic prophecies, and I taught it over in Kiev. But he made a point, every time I listened to him, I, just uh, this whole area is r- really fascinating, he made a point. Now, bear with me on this. I'll back, back you up, and I, and I want you to understand this because it's important what we're looking at here. In the Old Testament period, you had the development of the text of Scripture, God's revelation written down and passed on through the prophets and the schools of the prophets, and but it didn't reach a final form until after their return from the Babylonian exile and probably under the oversight of Ezra uh, within that return from, from the Old Testament. But it doesn't. it's not a text that's identical to the text that we have. In fact, it seems like the text wasn't quite as set as it becomes uh, by the um, period after after Christ. And that Hebrew text, remember, Hebrew is written, at least at that time, was written with consonants, no vowels, just consonants. And you can probably get out a dictionary and look through the dictionary and find several words that would look the same if they had their vowels removed and they just had three or four consonants there, that it could be uh, words that have no correlation or relationship to one another whatsoever. And so part of the job of the uh, Jewish uh, scribal community after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was to sort of finalize the form of the, of the Hebrew text. And that fell under a group called the Masoretes. And they developed by the second or third century after Christ a set of a way, way of indicating vowels, and they put uh, they're called vowel points, and it's either a system of dots or horizontal or vertical lines put under the consonants to indicate what the vowels would be. But it's become very clear due to studies like like Michael's study and some other studies of people in, in Old Testament textual criticism, which I am not an expert in at all, but I'm trying to learn some things in, that the Masoretes had an agenda. And it was an anti-Messianic agenda. 
because by the time they're finalizing that what we refer to as our standard Hebrew text now, the Masoretic text, by the time they're finalizing it, the Jewish community is coming under heavy assault from the gospel. And so the trend in the, in the uh, Jewish community in the early part of this era was to try to come up with alternate interpretations for these messianic prophecies, Micah 5.2, Isaiah 53, and numerous others, including our passage here in, in Amos. Um, and so uh, the, the Masoretes would work on this, and if they changed the vowels in a word, it would change the meaning of the word that of that verse so that it no longer had a messianic implication just by changing the vowels in one or two words. And Michael has demonstrated this quite effectively. And when I went through seminary, and he went through seminary at the same time, I did not was not aware of this, but he, uh, according to what he said, is there was only one man in the Dallas Seminary Old Testament Department when I was there who believed that there were that all what we would consider messianic prophecies, that there were many messianic prophecies. In fact, he said the standard view in the Old Testament department in the late 70s at Dallas was that there was only one messianic prophecy in the entire Old Testament. And that's becoming more and more of a popular view among uh, evangelical scholars today. And it's not a new view. Calvin held that view. And many of the reformers held that view because where did they learn Hebrew? They went down, they got a Jewish rabbi to teach them Hebrew. Well, that Jewish rabbi had been influenced by an 11th century rabbi who goes by the acronym Rashi. And Rashi had worked out a lot of these alternate non-Messianic uh, interpretations of these passages. And so that that non-Messianic interpretation of those passages in combination with the non-Messianic editing of the Masoretes uh, influenced uh, a stream of evangelicals. So it's kind of interesting to, to come to learn this. Now, another major player in, uh, in, in understanding Hebrew textual criticism is a scholar by the name of Emmanuel Tove, who I only know by reputation. He was here as a scholar in residence at this, uh, I forget the name of it now, the uh, theological library that uh, uh, Mark Lanier, yeah, that's it, the Lanier Library up off of uh, 1960 that they developed over the last couple of years. And Lanier brings some incredibly qualified scholars in as scholars in residence. And last September... Uh, Emmanuel Tove was brought in for six months as a scholar in residence, and I signed up to go over there every Friday afternoon to read Hebrew. Trouble is, that's when my dad broke his hip, and that kind of messed up all of those other plans, and so I never got, had a chance to meet him. But according to Emmanuel Tove, who's a Jewish scholar uh, in, in the Old Testament, said whenever the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch or the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls agree against the Masoretic text, especially in these Messianic prophecies, Wydelnik would add that part, go with the reading in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, and the Septuagint and forget the Masoretic text. But see, the view that you'll have in a lot of evangelical seminaries like Dallas and some others is if always go with the Masoretic text, that's, that's, that's the final line. But if you always go with the Masoretic text, you basically have to uh, cut 90% of what we traditionally believe are Messianic prophecies out of the Old Testament because they're, they, they basically get re, uh, re-edited by, by the Masoretes. So this is important, and that's why I wanted to go back and deal with Amos 9 a, a little bit more. So if we look at this particular passage, that James is quoting from, uh, James isn't running off on some kind of a, of a tangent here. He's quoting from uh, the Old Testament, but he's quoting from a Septuagint, pass, a Septuagint of his day. And even though the exact wording isn't found in the standard uh, Septuagint, uh, scho- uh, s- several scholars have identified a number of identical readings in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so this is, uh, this passage is, his working of the passage, I'll show you a little bit of the difference here in just a minute, 
is is clearly understood. So, as we uh, look at this, um, we see first of all we see that um, Amos is finally in starting in chapter nine giving a giving real hope of a change to the Israelites. Amos has hit them again and again and again, like like a boxer with just one punch of judgment after another punch of judgment all the way through from especially chapter 7 on with only a smattering of, of uh, grace, uh, grace, uh, grace offerings. Uh, starting chapter 7, it's the uh, number of these uh, these judgments that God's going to bring upon uh, upon Israel in in uh, Amos seven three. So the Lord relented concerning this, an indication of His grace. Again in cha- uh, verse six, so the Lord relented concerning this. It's a sign of God's grace, but it's not God's grace isn't indicated again until we come to uh, Amos nine eight. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. So that term sinful kingdom refers primarily here to Judah, the southern kingdom. The eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So that the fact that he's not going to completely wipe out the Jews from the face of the earth is a sign of God's uh, God's grace. He will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord, for surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel. That's referring to the entire nation. I will sift the, all twelve tribes. I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. This is a typical depiction of divine judgment. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. So he's making this distinction between the sinners, and that's an indication of the unbelievers. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say that calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. In other words, they're saying, God's not really going to judge us. We can just live like we want to. There's no accountability. We have the same kind of thing today. And then verse 11. Now, this is where the quote comes into play in, from... Um, from Acts 15, on that day. Now, if you look at the passage in Acts uh, 15, it doesn't begin on that day. It begins after that day. And so that's one of the, one of the differences. And that's not found in the Septuagint either. That is what um, Robert Thomas, and I agree with Thomas on this point, that is what Robert Thomas identifies as an inspired, now this, I'm going to explain this in a minute, inspired census plenier uh, application. Now what he means by that in the academic verbiage of theologians, census plenier is just a Latin phrase for the full meaning of the text. See, something is said in the Old Testament, and you would never get from your study of the Old Testament the application that's used in the New Testament. You'd never, how in the world does that if you just exegeted Psalm 23 or Psalm 22 and then you went to its fulfillment in the New Testament, you'd say, how did all, I don't see how they got all of that from, from that. It doesn't, doesn't always fit. That's because there's a fuller sense uh, of the passage. That's what senses somebody's phone's going off. Everybody's looking around. So. Whose phone's going off? Whose phone's going off? So census plenure is pulling something that's out of the text that you would normally get from just reading the text. So when we look at this passage on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repairs images. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The application of that to the church isn't evident in that passage. James is going to apply it He's not going to say it's fulfilled. He's going to apply it, though, to what's happening in their circumstance in James 15. So that's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He has the authority to expand the meaning of that text. But you don't and I don't because we don't have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's why he uses that term. It's an inspired uh, use of the Old Testament that goes beyond the original meaning of the text in the Old Testament. 
Now, that, that gets pretty academic, but the reason I quote that is to show that this is not unusual, uh, this, this approach. Arnold Fruchtenbaum breaks it down a d- different way, and in fact, uh, it didn't, it's not original with Arnold. Arnold got it from a uh, pastor, a missionary to, to the Jews by the name of David, David Cooper. David Cooper, I understand it, got a, got it from, uh, Emil Schur in his classic five volume work on the life and time, or the life, um, uh, it has something to do with the Jews in the f- period of the time of Christ. It's a huge five volume work. And so th- what this shows is that, that in the Jewish community, there were several different ways in which they talked about fulfillment passages. Now, we've gone over this before. I talked about the last time, literal prophecy and literal fulfillment, um, uh, literal historical event plus typology, and then literal event plus an application. This, In other words, this is like that. And that's where, where uh, we are in terms of James' use here, and I went over that as well the last time. So what we have in, in starting in Amos 9-11, and I want you to notice that the, that the text is pretty clear. It starts off, uh, I didn't, don't have this up here. If you look at verse, oh, yes, I do. If you look at verse 12, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Notice it ends with the phrase, says the Lord who does this thing. Well, if you look at verse 8, okay, that's why you need to have your Bible open to Amos 9. Uh, verse 8 reads, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. That phrase, says the Lord, ends a segment. Okay, that's like the end of that paragraph. Then 9 starts, For surely I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle, blah, 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 down through verse 12. And then verse 12 says, says the Lord who does this thing. So that phrase, says the Lord, breaks the passage into segments. And so this segment goes from verse 9 down through verse verse 12. And then in verse 13, it introduces a new element. Uh, this relates to prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows seed. This means that this is an idiom dealing with abundance of product, agricultural production. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I'm just amazed. Now, this isn't fulfillment of prophecy. But I'm just amazed how in the last four or five years boutique vineyards have gone. I, I drove through areas of the Negev, which is desert this time. I had an unusual experience. First time I've ever had it rain on me when I've been in Israel, and it rained on me down in the De- Negev. And I'm, I'll show you some pictures. This is this is like dri- almost like driving through, um, you know, the, a major desert, the Mojave Desert out in Southern California. It's just as barren as it could be. But with the introduction of irrigation techniques, there, there's vineyards sprouting up all across the desert. It's just the incredible agricultural technology that Israel's developed. It's not fulfillment of prophecy yet. This prophecy, verse 13, is all related to the, the bounty and the, uh, the, the um, prosperity during the time of the millennial kingdom. So verses, verse 13 and on talk about what happens chronologically at the beginning of that, the, at that kingdom. When the Lord returns, there's going to be this abundance of production. Verse 14 says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. This is talking about the restoration of the Jewish people to their historic land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by God. Verse 14, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the, from the land which I have given them. Now, this is not being fulfilled today. This last year, some of you went with me, I know, 
uh, we went down to a uh, church over on the on the east side to hear a rabbi. This is really fascinating to hear a rabbi, Rabbi Zadok. He is related to the Zadok Jewelry family. If you know Zadok Jewelers here in Houston, he's the owner's brother. He's a rabbi from Israel. He's the first time I've seen anybody other than evangelicals put Hebrew text and English text up on the overhead. And he gave a fascinating message to support that God is behind the return of the Jews to the land today. And he took as his text uh, Deuteronomy. And he went to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29, which is talking about the, the return, and on into Deuteronomy 30, and he goes through all of the blessing and returning to God, except he skipped verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. That was really fascinating, how he went almost went verse by verse through chapter 29, and then verse 30, but he skips the, the key issue, which is when the Jews return to the land and obey God's voice. That's the causative issue in the in, in the future restoration of the kingdom. If you ignore that, then this return can try to fit. So it was, once again, a use of somebody trying to massage the text to fit their agenda. But this return that is talked about here is a return, uh, the return of the remnant uh, when they have been regenerated and they have welcomed the Messiah, and that's what happens at the end of Acts 9. So where does Acts 11, 9, 11, excuse me, where does Rome, uh, uh, Amos 9, 11, and 12 fit here? It's that the on that day is in relation to the conclusion of the judgments that are mentioned in the previous three chapters. And they, it all comes to a head. God finalizes the judgment on his people in verses 9 and 10, and then he says, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. Now the phrase tabernacle here in the, in the, um, Hebrew is the word Sukkot from the, just like the word that's used in Hebrew, it's the feast of Sukkot. In the fall, it's a feast of booths. It indicates a temporary dwelling. It's translated by the Septuagint, um, by the word for, uh, for, for tabernacle. Uh, that when when we talk about Jesus uh, t- took up his dwelling among us, that's a t- tabernacled among us, um, and it's that same same Greek word. So the tabern this is a reference to the tabernacle of David. But what this describes is the house of David, the Davidic dynasty, that the house of David had fallen down by this time. Amos is announcing this judgment upon the people, this judgment on the Davidic dynasty, this judgment on Judah, that it's going to come to a crashing halt uh, with Zedekiah in 586 B.C. when Judea is kept, uh, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the temple is destroyed, and yet which then means that for God to fulfill his promise to David in the Davidic covenant, God will have to restore the house of David. Now, literal interpretation here means that this relates to the house of David. You can't transfer it to the church. Yet that's what covenant theology does, and that's what replacement theology does, is they leave behind literal interpretation, and they they say this has to refer to the church. So the tabernacle of David here is the church, and they try to make the, this restoration of the tabernacle of David fit with what happened on uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, Shavuot. Anybody know what today is? Today is Arab Shavuot. The, to, tonight at, at this evening at at dusk at sundown, Pentecost began. Today is the day of began the day of Pentecost. So that's the the uh, that's just coincidentally uh, the. But the view of the uh, of replacement theology is that the church is the tabernacle of David that is being rebuilt and being repaired and being ra- raised up, and that that's the fulfillment of this passage. Now, in verse 12, we have an interesting passage that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Now, this just just a real slight note here. I'm not going to get into all the details here, but you can hear the similarity between Adam and Edom. What are the consonants in Edom? 
DM. What are the consonants in uh, Adam? DM. How do you tell which is which if there are no vowels or no vowel points? You just have the same two consonants there, DM. So context has to tell you what it is. So you can change the, you know, change the vowels. And in one case, it's Adam. In another case, it's Edom. If it's Edom, then this is talking about <coughs> a historic fulfillment that has to do with the people the, of the Edomites. But if this is, if the original is Adam, not Edom, but Adam, which is um, the, also the word for mankind. He will, they will, he will possess the remnants of Adam, the remnants of mankind. Then this is becomes related to a messianic pro- prophecy, prom- prophecy related to the coming of the Messiah uh, to rule over all of the human race, and that's exactly what we have in this particular passage. Um, if you look at verse 11, at the top phrase there, this is how it reads in the Masoretic text. In that day I will cause to... St- and it's got, this, it's got these really weird issues in the Masoretic text. I will cause to stand the booth of David. Booth is a feminine singular noun. The fallen one, feminine singular noun again. And I will wall up their breaches... There is a plural. See, you've had feminine singular nouns. Now you have a feminine plural noun. To what plural noun does that refer? See, a plural noun needs to refer back to a plural noun. So that just doesn't fit. It's very confusing. Uh, I will wall up their breaches and his ruins. This is a masculine singular noun. To what does that refer? It's a masculine singular noun. See, it's very confusing in the Masoretic text. In the second example at the bottom, we have the same verse in the Septuagint, but it, the, the pronouns all fit. In that day I will raise up the tent of David which has fallen, and I shall rebuild its ruins. See, it's talking about the house of David. And its remains I will raise up, and I shall rebuild it even as the days of old, so that the remnant of men, not not as you read in your English translation, the remnant of Edom, but the remnant of men, the remnant of mankind, shall seek. That is the believers of all of, of all of history, both Jew and Gentile. The remnant of, of mankind shall seek, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, says the Lord, who shall do these things. See, the Septuagint makes more sense, but the Masoretic text got messed with in terms of the pronouns, in terms of the meaning, to obfuscate the, the Messianic uh, prophecy in the text. Now, Arnold Fruchtenbaum points out that in Amos, or Amos 9, 11, and 12, was taken by the rabbis as a messianic passage. Uh, one of the rabbinic names for the Messiah is Bar Nafli, which means the son of the fallen one. See the that uh, Nafal is used there in uh, verse eleven. On the day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. So the fallen one that became a messianic title. Uh, the Talmud reads, uh, uh, Rabbi Nachman said to Rabbi Isaac. Whence art you taught when Bar Nafli will come? He said to him, Who is this Bar Nafli? The other replied, It is the Messiah. For it is written, In those days I will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. So you see, the ancient rabbinic view is that this is a messianic prophecy. But the Masoretes obfuscated that by the way they, they added different vowel points to change the meaning so it wouldn't appear to be a messianic prophecy. So that's the significance of looking at this particular verse. So we have to understand it uh, in, his, his, in terms of its literal meaning, and we have to make sure we have an actual uh, meaning of the text by, by looking at uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the words and understanding all these textual variants and everything else. And you thought Bible study was easy. Now, the problem that we get with the interpretation in Acts, so let's turn back over to Acts 15, is the confusion brought by, uh, by the uh, Calvinist or Reformed covenantal theologians. 
O.T. Alice was a Old Testament scholar from Westminster Seminary back at the uh, 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and he said, if James' quotation here in Acts 15 refers to the Christian church, the claim of dispensationalists that prophecy skips over the church age cannot be maintained. See, he's trying to argue that James is saying that that uh, Amos 9 is fulfilled. And yet, look at the text. Look carefully at the text in Acts 15, 16. Or 15, 15. With this, the words of the prophets agree. He doesn't say, he doesn't even use the term fulfillment. Now, in Matthew 2, as I pointed out many times, you have four different examples of the ways in which Old Testament uh, the passages are quoted as fulfilled prophecy. So that word fulfilled doesn't always mean the same thing, but he doesn't even use the word fulfilled here. He just says uh, the idea of God saving Gentiles is is not new. The prophets agreed with that. Now he uses the word prophets, a plural, and that doesn't just simply mean a plurality of prophets. It relates to the entire second division of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh. That's an acronym, T-N-K. T for Torah, N for, which is the law. N for Nevi'im, which is the Hebrew word for prophets. And the K for Ketuvim, which is the word for the writings. So when James says, and with this the words of the prophets agree, he's not talking about individual prophets. He's talking about that section, uh, one-third of the Old Testament, that is called the prophets. You have the early prophets, which are uh, Joshua, Judges, which would include Ruth, First, uh, Second Samuel, First uh, and Second Kings, and then the later prophets, which would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. These were the prophets. Daniel wasn't in the prophets, he wasn't a prophet by office, so his writing was in the, the, the collection of the, the, the writings, the Ketuvim. Now, another scholar, a, a post-millennialist, is Ken Gentry. Ken Gentry said that this is one of the passages in the New Testament that illustrate how the church fulfills prophecies regarding Israel, that this is the ultimate fulfillment of many prophecies to Israel symbolically depicted as Israel. So he's getting into uh, the uh, allegorical interpretation. And then he says, I note above that some Old Testament prophetic passages apply to the Gentiles calling in the New Testament. Consequently, they speak of the church. See, what he sees is that the church in the Old Testament um, and Israel in the, New, in the New Testament. And they base this on this idea that, that somehow Jesus is sitting on David's throne today. But the New Testament teaches in, in Revelation 3.21 uh, to him who overcomes, Jesus said, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So right now, while Jesus is sitting on the sitting in heaven in, in what we call the session, he's not sitting on his throne. He is sitting on uh, the father's throne. So as we look at this passage in uh, Acts 15, this is not a passage where James is saying that the church fulfills this passage, that the church is the rebuilt tabernacle of David, but that by looking at this passage, as I pointed out last time, he is simply saying that just as in the fulfillment of this passage in the future, there will be an inclusion of a large number of Gentiles in the, in the kingdom, it is not outside the plan of God to include the salvation of Gentiles today. In other words, Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to be saved. Uh, this is exactly what John Nelson Darby concluded in this passage. Darby is considered the father of dispensational theology. Uh, he lived, uh, he, he came to under a lot of his theological convictions as a young man around um, 1832, 1833, and systematized for the first time a lot of ideas that had been around for a long time that now are known as dispensationalism. He said verses 11 and 12 of this chapter are quoted in Acts 15, referring to verses 11 and 12 and almost 9. Verses 11 and 12 of this chapter are quoted in Acts 15, not for the purpose of showing that the prophecy had then come to pass, 
but to prove that God had all along determined upon having a people from out of the Gentiles, and that therefore the language of the prophets agreed with that which Simon Peter had been relating of what God had done in his days. It is not the accomplishment of a prophecy, but the establishing of a principle by the mouth of the prophets as well as by the word of the Spirit through Simon Peter. In other words, the principle is that God's going to save Gentiles, and they don't have to become Jewish to be saved. God has a separate plan for the Gentiles. And so that is the emphasis on this passage. Now, next time we'll come back, finish up with looking at the decree itself and then uh, moving on down the road. And on Thursday night, I'm going to start giving some more up, uh, just some insights, some briefings from the Israel trip. I took a lot of video. I'm trying to pull some of that together. Uh, first day, it was really blue. I didn't know there was such a thing on the video as white balance, so it's a little blue-tinted. But there's, these are, these are going to be short lectures from our guide. I'm going to play these and they're very interesting, especially for people who've never been to Israel or who never will go to Israel. It's going to give you a really good insight into what, what it's like to, to be in that area and to look at these, these sites along with some other updates related to current events. And that'll go on through most of the summer because I'm only going to take about no more than 10 minutes each class to just give a little insight from this, and we can uh, uh, learn from that through the summer. So let's, bow, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity tonight to study your word, to focus on these things, to recognize that you have a plan throughout from eternity past that covers all of human history. You have determined to save Jews under an Old Testament context, but that there was a shift that occurred in the New Testament, not a shift that ended your plan for Israel, but a shift that opened up a new plan to include Gentiles and Jews together in a new body. That barrier of the law is broken down, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, so that now we are a new people of God. And that, But this does not mean that your plan for the Jews or the Jewish people or for Israel has ended. Uh, you haven't transferred your promises to the church uh, from Israel to the church, but you are uh, adding a new element. Father, we pray for uh, each of us so we might be challenged to study your word even more, to uh, really probe its depths, that we may come to an accurate understanding of the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.